Good morning. <clears throat> Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've been here, uh, you know that Pastor Bailey is, has been preaching through 1 Corinthians for the past several months. If you're relatively new, you might not realize that the pastor's college students have been preaching through 2 Corinthians for about a year now. We're in chapter 6. We expect Pastor Bailey to get in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians in about five years. So <clears throat> it's kind of weird to tell the same jokes in two services. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> a few things before we get started. First, uh, I want you to remember what's going on in Corinth at this time. This is the second letter that we have to the church at Corinth. Um, and what you need to understand going in is that Paul's ministry has been attacked by false apostles. And so he's largely writing this letter in defense of his ministry. False apostles have come into the church. They've attacked his ministry, they've undermined his ministry, and so they've undermined the work that God has done through them, through Paul, and in him as well. So, <clears throat> understand that, and then also understand this, that his defense of his ministry is really a defense of two things. First, it's a defense of the glory of God. I think it was Lucas at some point uh, who taught us how the Apostle Paul was so identified with the message, so identified with the gospel, that his reputation and the integrity of the gospel were both at stake when his ministry was attacked. So this is bigger than the Apostle Paul. He doesn't have a complex. He's concerned with the glory of God and the integrity of the gospel, and that's why he must defend his own integrity and the integrity of his ministry. That's the first thing. The second thing is he's writing... He's defending his ministry to, to preserve his ability to continue to teach and instruct them in the faith. He's not simply given up on the church at Corinth. There's work to be done, and he needs their trust, and he needs their respect, and he needs their love to accomplish that work. And part of that work for them is loving and trusting and respecting him who has been set apart by God for the very purpose of proclaiming the gospel to them, teaching and instructing them. In other words, Paul's not an egotist. He's not seeking his own glory, but he is defending himself because the glory of God is bound up in his own reputation. And that's largely what this morning's passage is concerned with. It's not, however, what we're going to mainly be concerned with because he's defending his ministry to a purpose. And what we're going to do is look at one of the exhortations that he gives the church at Corinth in the context of defending his ministry. So we're going to first look at his self-defense briefly, and then we're going to go in a related but somewhat different direction. So turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's read. Starting in verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything. And understand, that was, he was just quoting scripture from the Old Testament, and that was a parenthesis. So, hear him speak to you like this. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
And we give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the words of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. There are three things in this passage that the Apostle Paul does in his own defense. The first thing he does is to identify himself as a co-laborer with God. Working together with him. That is, working together with God. And that's really the finishing touches on an argument that he developed earlier in chapter 5 in which he declares himself to be a chosen instrument of God. A minister of reconciliation. An ambassador of Jesus Christ. So the first defense is... That he has been called of God and set apart as a minister of the gospel. It's his first defense. God himself has called me and set me apart for the work of the gospel ministry. And he is a co-worker, a co-laborer with God himself. That's his first defense. The second thing he does is to defend his integrity. And he does this by producing a list that deals with three basic things. First, his suffering for the gospel. Afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger, sufferings for the gospel. His gifts and graces, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the word of truth, the power of God with weapons of righteousness. His suffering for the gospel, his integrity, or sorry, his gifts and graces and his circumstances by glory and dishonor, with an evil report, with a good report, in the midst of sorrow. All of which Calvin calls the test by which the Lord usually tries his ministers. These are the experiences of the Apostle Paul. And among other things, they're not only to demonstrate his faithfulness, but to teach us what a faithful ministry should look like. They're also, in some degree, a reflection of the normal Christian life. It's true that most of these, that this passage applies most directly to ministers of the gospel. But we, as far as we obey God by imitating the faith of the men he's placed over us, we will be treated as they are treated. You remember, we're called and commanded to imitate the faith of those who have gone before us, to imitate the faith of our leaders. Paul himself 
calls the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And as we imitate the Apostle Paul, as we imitate the the leaders, the pastors, the elders that God has placed over us, we'll join them in their suffering in some degree. A servant's not greater than his master. A student is not greater than his teacher. And that should give us both hope and it should be concerning to us. It should be concerning because to the degree that there's no resonance, that there's no kinship with these experiences for the sake of Jesus, we need to examine ourselves and see if we're really in the faith. And it should be a cause of hope because if there is some resemblance, then the consolations listed here in the midst of suffering are ours also. We're just a part of a long train of pilgrims that learn to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, that learn endurance in the midst of slander, that are impoverished but used by God to make many rich with the gift of everlasting life. So the first thing he does, I am chosen by God, a minister of the gospel. My ministry has integrity. I have suffered for the sake of the gospel. You know my gifts and my graces. The third thing he does is he moves from that appeal to an appeal to the sincerity of his heart, his earnestness. And he does it like a father pleading with his children. Our mouth has spoken freely. Our heart is open wide. Open your hearts to us also. He's not being facetious when he says he's speaking as the children. It's a good illustration of what the father in Proverbs says when he says, my son, give me your heart. I've given you my heart. I'm open. I've spoken freely. I've not held anything back for your good. I've poured myself out for you. Open your heart to me too, like a good son or daughter. He comes back to this over and over. He does it again in chapter 7. We're not going to go there. But what's he doing? He's fighting for their hearts. He wants their affections. He wants their loyalty. He's doing everything he can to win them. And he doesn't hold back. Why? Why is he doing that? He really loves them. And he really desires their good. And... He not only wants their hearts to be won by him, won to him, but won to Jesus. So that they will obey sincerely. So he's putting weight here. He's adding weight. And he's putting himself behind the commands and the exhortations that are sown throughout this letter. He's not holding anything back. Now, you don't have the Apostle Paul standing before you this morning. But you must hear the word of God spoken to you for your salvation. You have the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit here in Scripture. And they are God's word to you. So what is all of this weight being brought to bear upon? What's the command? What's the exhortation? It's this. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Look in uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Here's my one concern this morning. My one concern is that you do not receive the grace of God in vain. And understand, it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain. The warning exists for a reason. It's real. It's not a game. And what we're tempted to do when we come up against passages like this that are frightening, what we want to do is we want to to take away all their teeth. We want to fit them into our box. And we do it in the name of having uh, doctrinal integrity, right? What we're really doing is avoiding the heat of God's word. There are two things that we need to understand this morning, and that's what it means to receive the grace of God in vain, and we need to understand how not to do it. So, what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Here's what it can't mean. Some argue that it means you accept the atonement of Jesus, you accept reconciliation with God, but you just don't get the most out of it. You just don't get your best life now. There's no real fruit, no real sanctification, and that kind of stinks short term. But in the long term, it doesn't really matter. Now, listen, that's complete bunk. That's garbage. We know that for two reasons. First of all, you just don't get justification without sanctification. There's no such thing as taking hold of Christ without renouncing your sin. There's no such thing as following Jesus without taking up your cross. Two. Salvation is clearly at stake in the context of the passage. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Other people argue that it means that you can literally fall from grace. That you can receive pardon from God and then forfeit that pardon based on certain actions. Now, first of all, there is no reason at all to import actual pardon and forgiveness or reconciliation into the the term grace as it's used here. Second of all, that reduces the gospel to nothing more than a works-based system. If I'm doing the right things, I'm in. If I'm doing the wrong things, I'm out. And it only depends on what I'm doing at the moment. And finally, we actually do need to take the full witness of Scripture into account. Scripture teaches us that everyone God justifies He glorifies. Everyone he calls, he keeps. And that leaves us with one other option. And that's this. There is a sense in which the grace of God can be received without implying that forgiveness, pardon, and reconciliation have taken place. That's the constant testimony of Scripture. 
And it's the testimony of Christians throughout the ages. There is a kind of man that receives abundant blessing and grace from God who still does not partake of his forgiveness. And some of these men were likely to be found at the church in Corinth. Otherwise, the warning wouldn't be here in the midst of the letter. And so it stands to reason that it's very likely that some of you are this person. It's a biblical understanding. In Hebrews 6, God speaks of those that, quote, have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. And it says that it is, quote, impossible to renew such men to repentance. And then there's a passage of explanation. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. In other words, for some people, God in his mercy, in his grace, pours rain on barren land. But the barren land yields no fruit. God sends his, sends his word. The gospel is preached. And there is some understanding of sin. Some illumination takes place. There's some sense in which this barren land partakes of the power of the Holy Spirit and tastes the goodness of the word of God. After all, the rain falls on it. They sit in the congregation. They're a part of the covenant community. They partake of the fellowship. They partake of the sacraments, but they are barren land and they produce no fruit. They may seem for a while to be true believers, but the root is shallow, the sun is hot, and there are many rocks and thorn bushes. Again, in Hebrews 10, it speaks about those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And it says that for such, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This is Calvin again. He says this. Quote, I do not see that there is any reason why God should not touch the reprobate with a taste of his grace. Or illumine their minds with some glimmerings of his light. Or affect them with some sense of his goodness. Or to some extent engrave his word on their hearts. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the parable of the sower? There must be some knowledge in the reprobate which later vanishes away either because it drives its roots less deep than it ought to, or because it is choked and withers away. There used to be a name for this. These men and women used to be called awakened sinners. It's a term that you find constantly throughout uh, evangelical church history, from Martin Luther basically up to Martin Lloyd-Jones a couple years ago. These are men and women that have some sense of their sin, some sense of their need for forgiveness. You find these men in Scripture. This was Cornelius, the God-fearer, who still needed the gospel preached to him. It was also Judas, who lived with Jesus, who performed many good deeds, who after his betrayal was deeply grieved. But his grief wasn't godly grief. It had nothing of the hope of the gospel in it. The rich young ruler had some sense of need. 
Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus at night, had some sense of need. But he didn't belong to God. Jesus said, you must be born again. And this is some of you, too. Some of you have some sense of your sinfulness or your neediness. Some sense that all the things you hear up here every Sunday morning are true and that they should be embraced. And you come and you participate and you might even pretend. But you have never, ever actually given your heart to God. Never. And God may have even used you to do great things, just like Judas. And like Judas, you've never actually taken up your cross. You're pretending. You're dancing around the edges. You always have been. Nobody's ever doubted or questioned you. Make no mistake about it. Feeling bad for your sin and experiencing some sense that the gospel is true will not save you. It doesn't make you regenerate. You must be born again. God must do a sovereign work in your heart. You must be changed. And you must truly repent and truly believe and truly bear fruit. True fruit, real fruit. The prodigal son actually had to get out of the pigsty. Laying there and feeling bad did not get him the favor of his father. Some of you have grown up in the church and the rain has fallen on you lavishly. You have good, godly parents who have instructed you in the faith. You've had excellent Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders. You've been baptized. You've made a profession of faith. And you are barren land. There is no fruit. And you must be warned not to receive the grace of God in vain. Some of you have committed notorious sins and your conscience constantly condemns you. You know that you've acted very wickedly and you sense a need to change, to amend your life. So you're here. You come, but you don't believe you do penance. You try to fit in. You have a head knowledge that salvation is by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but you're in bondage to your pride. You are ashamed of yourself and you will not have Jesus paying for your sins. And therefore, you have never actually had the peace of God or the joy of real forgiveness in your life. Some of you have pretensions that have prevented you from really taking up your cross. You call yourself a Christian, but you're a respectable Christian. You're here, but it's painful for you to be here. You're embarrassed and ashamed to be here among the saints. And you'd rather die than have any of your friends or your colleagues come and hear one of Pastor Bailey's sermons. You'd never buy in wholesale. You'd never do anything that would jeopardize your standing as an intellectual or as the hip, cool socialite. You tempt God. You mock him. But God is not mocked. Some of you are empty. You have a very real sense that you're lacking something, that something is missing. That something's not right. And you believe that something has something to do with God. So you're around. Maybe you're just lonely. Maybe you like the community here. Maybe you come from a broken home and you just want to have 
a father. Or you want to learn what it's like to be a decent dad or a decent mom. You don't really understand what's going on here, not from the heart. You're just a utilitarian. You don't know God. Some of you just love the world. You love your sin or your pet sin or your secret sin. And you've never, ever actually given your heart to God because you have that sin that you treasure and that you hold to and that you will not ever, ever let go of. Or you've just never given a rip about God at all. Some of you are presumptuous. You're very quick to salve your own conscience. You're quick to soothe it. And you resent anyone or anything that would afflict it. You heal your own wounds and you heal them lightly. Not with the grace of God, but with false promises. And some of you despair. You think your sin is too great for God to surmount. You think yourself too unlovely or too unlovable. You think you've put yourself beyond his reach. You flatter yourself. There is no sinner beyond God's reach. There is no sin that Jesus' blood was powerless to cover, and there is no wretched sinner so ugly as to make him shudder. Today is the day of salvation. Some of you are blind and ignorant and darkened. You've heard of God with your ears, but you do not know him. You've heard how you're to live, but you do not walk with him. You know that you should pray, but you pray to fate, not to a father. And some of you are so tangled up in your own sin that you can't tell if you actually belong to Jesus or not. Today is the day of salvation, it says. Today is the day to repent and to be reconciled to God. Listen, I could go on and on and on. The point's not to beat you up. The point is to cut your legs out from underneath you, from every false trust, from every false hope, so that you fall on Jesus Christ, because he is the only hope of salvation. How do you not receive the grace of God in vain? You're receiving it now as his word is being preached to you. How do you not receive it in vain? You fly to Jesus Christ. You make it your life's business to be constantly turning from your sin and laying hold of him. And you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You have to hear the urgency in this text. It's real. Your soul really is at stake. Scripture constantly is calling you to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. It says, make your calling and election sure. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now listen, as long as the rain is falling on you, there's hope. The rain, the gospel, the grace of God brings life. There's hope. It's real. It's extended to you now. But also hear the warning. As long as the gospel is preached to you and you resist it, there is nothing for you but fear. To those who resist it, it brings death. And the call this morning is to fly to Christ. The gospel is free and it's big. And God delights to save sinners. He does not oppose those that come to him humbly. Everyone that comes to him, he receives. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Passages like this call us to wake up. The truth is that everybody in this room needs to be exhorted to lay hold of Christ. That's not me channeling my inner Southern Baptist. That's biblical. This passage is in the midst of a letter to Christians. It's to a church. And to Christians, he says, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So did they need it? Did they need to hear it? How about the Hebrews? Did they need to hear it? The church at Galatia, I fear I've labored over you in vain. I do not nullify the grace of God. Did they need to hear it? Do you need to hear it? We need to be exhorted not to receive the grace of God in vain. The path to apostasy is a very slippery path. And there really are seeds that are sown on rocky soil that spring up and wither away. Otherwise, the parable is meaningless. And Jesus never spoke a meaningless word. Put your roots down deep and do not be presumptuous. Do not tempt God. Do not tolerate, let alone cultivate sin in your heart. You may be David. God may grant you repentance after your adultery and murder. But you also may be Saul or Esau. And you may find that despite how you may have felt at one time or another, you never actually belong to Jesus Christ. But also do not be unbelieving. Jesus came to save sinners. And if you've woken up and discovered that that's what you are, then there's good news and there's hope. Christ came for you and he delights to show you mercy. Let's pray.